they say out with the old in with the new i know i know it seems like just a short while ago we were saying the same thing and with the end of one year and the start of a new one now's the time to reflect on the past and move forward with renewed intentions new resolutions for the upcoming year as it draws closer well my friends with that said i want to welcome you to the 27th of december 2022 episode of the greenwich town for all seasons show podcast this weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town of Greenwich was founded on July 18, 1640. Since those early humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has grown to become, in the 21st century, one of America's most notable and attractive communities. For us, it's a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history, and I'm so glad that you could join us for today's final show of the year 2022. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Cheers to a fascinating year soon to be behind us and an amazing year 2023 coming up really fast. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, we're going to visit the glorious white Georgian colonial mansion known as The Orchards in Round Hill. Thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich and its book, The Great Estate, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930. This 32-room mansion was constructed for Tyler Redfield and designed by Frank Ashburton Moore. For those of us who grew up here, we knew this place as Seabury House, the stately conference center for the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States and the home of its presiding bishop. I'll also share with you details of a lavish wedding that took place at the Orchards here in Greenwich, Connecticut in the year 1911. On the Judge's Corner, Frederick A. Hubbard wrote in 1932 about the raising of gamecocks in Greenwich, horse racing, maritime sports, and other favorites among the local population. Quote, Greenwich police guard the railroad station as the train carrying Winston Churchill passes through at 4.18 a.m. The FBI, aided by Greenwich police, raid more than 50 homes of enemy aliens to seize contraband. Greenwich Country Day School merges with Rosemary Junior School to become a co-educational school on the Country Day campus and more. We'll go back in history to the year 1942, as found in Greenwich Before 2000, a chronology of the town of Greenwich, 1640 to 1999. On Greenwich life as it is and was in December 1922, Erwin Edwards told his audience about what Greenwich was like when the railroads were new starting in 1848 and their impact on the town. 
My friends, as we edge closer and closer to the year, or edging out rather, the year 2022, you'll hear a sampling of how the people of Greenwich celebrated the end of one year and the beginning of yet another. I'll share all sorts of historical news of crimes, fires, maybe a catastrophe or two, we'll throw that in and more. My friends, you have come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. I'll have all this for you and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Greenwich office at 
203-485-7595. It's time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's history to the Gilded Age era, when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Fitch Jr. referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the greatest states Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed in history from the Gilded Age era, and it's a book that I strongly recommend. On today's show, we're going to visit the Orchards, which is located in Round Hill in the backcountry, and we're going to meet its its uh, principal owner. That would be Tyler Longstreet Redfield. The architect was Frank Ashburton Moore, and it was constructed in 1909 through 1919. The glorious white Georgian colonial mansion that crowns a 400-foot rise off Round Hill Road was known until recently as Seabury House. Between 1947 and 1983, the stately wood-framed residence was the conference center for the Protestant Episcopal Church and the home of its presiding bishop, the scene of countless meetings and endless activity. However, it was first conceived as a quiet country estate, It was a working farm in 1909 when Tyler Longstreet Redfield brought the 112 acres from Benjamin Fairchild. The rolling land contained extensive woods, a brook, a three-acre lake, and splendid apple orchards. Redfield aptly named his new property the Orchards. Tyler Redfield, who lived from 1865 to 1922, was born in Clifton Springs, a small town in northern New York State, 40 miles below Lake Ontario. He took advantage of the opportunities afforded by the long period of unusual peace and enormous economic growth that followed the Civil War and developed a career in printing and publishing. In 1881, he joined his brother, Judd, as a partner in the New York City printing firm of Redfield, Kendrick, and Odell. At the same time, he was vice president of the Redfield Advertising Agency and publisher of Newspaperdom, a monthly trade paper for editors. His interests include civic responsibilities and sports, He was a director of the Putnam Bank in Greenwich and a vice president of the Bank of Pinehurst in North Carolina, where he owned a large estate known as Boxcourt. He was also an incorporator of the Greenwich Hospital and a trustee of Brunswick School. His club memberships included the Field Club of Greenwich and the Greenwich Country Club, the New York and Indian Harbor Yacht Clubs, and the Apawamas Club in Rye. He married Lydia Wright Pearson, and although they have no children of their own, she had four sons from a previous marriage. The youngest, Oliver S. Pearson, changed his name to Redfield in a gracious gesture to his stepfather. In July 1909, Redfield hired Frank A. Moore of New York City to be the architect of his 32-room mansion. The approach is a broad, straight drive lined by birch trees whose white trunks echo the six great Doric columns supporting the Greek portico above the entrance. 
Two long wings reach out on either side, perfecting the harmony of understated magnificence. The slate roof is topped by seven tall brick chimneys. Three dormers on each wing carry windows whose arches are defined by the delicate tracery of the fan motif used on top of the towering Palladian windows of the first floor. The fan motif appears many times in the semicircular windows at the, enter- at the center of the main portico, above the French doors to the second floor balcony, in four oval windows, two on each wing, and even in the arches over the gates in the stone wall bordering the property. On the southern face of the mansion, there are, eight, or there are fan windows in the porticos of the two wings that jut out from the building at right angles to the flagstone terrace, and the design is repeated above each of the seven dormer windows in the roof. A white balustrade widow's walk nestles like a tiara above them all. Amor's fanciful digression from classicism. Although it is set deep in the lush countryside, the orchards claims a spectacular view described by one of Redfield's friends as, quote, delightful, up and down the sound for 25 miles, unquote. The spacious entrance hall, which includes a marble-faced fireplace, is centered by a three-story gallery reached by a divided staircase. The stairs meet on the second floor, where the landing gives access to the balcony above the entrance. Off the reception hall is a sunken living room with an exquisite paneled fireplace, a molded ceiling, and gigantic palladian windows. French doors open to the terrace, whose broad steps lead to the formal gardens. Handsome fireplaces and paneling also enhance the formal living room, the library, and the music room, which once held an electric Aeolian pipe organ. Before it became Seabury House, the orchards had a glass-enclosed breakfast room, which looked onto a tiled porch covered by awnings. There are six master bedrooms, one with two dressing rooms and six baths on the second floor. Originally, there were two sleeping porches as well. Above four bedrooms and two baths are on a third floor, and an entire wing was given to the service establishment. In all, the mansion contains more than 21,000 square feet of living space. After Judge Regfield was married at the Orchards in 1911 to Emily Rockwood in a magnificent wedding that featured a breakfast catered by Delmonico's, he brought his bride home from their wedding trip to Pinehurst to live there. Although there was certainly sufficient space for the newlyweds in the great house, it is likely that they occupied the 12-room colonial house on the estate known as Dover House, also designed by Moore and completed in 1910. A five-room cottage is attached to Dover House by a covered walk, built at the same time as the servants' quarters. The eight-room stone gate lodge was also finished in 1910. A six-room farmhouse and a two-room bungalow were on the property when Redfield bought it, as were the barn and the stables. Redfield added a garage, a greenhouse, and a tennis court. Unfortunately, Tyler Redfield enjoyed his Greenwich estate for a brief 11 years. He died suddenly in 1922 at the age of 57. His widow sold the orchards to 
Herbert L. Satterley in 1925 and moved to New York City. After her death in 1928, Lydia Pearson Redfield left an, an estate in excess of $1 million to be distributed among her family and various institutions, one of which was the First Church of Christ Science in Greenwich. Herbert Satterley, whose wife Louisa, who lived from 1866 to 1946, was the oldest daughter of J. Pierpont Morgan, purchased 89 of the original 112 acres, including the lake on its delightful rock-ledge setting and gardens, both formal and vegetable, and the apple orchards. As they advanced in years, the Satterleys found that the Great House required too much of their energy and moved into Dover House, where Louisa Satterley died in October 1946 at the age of 80. In May 1947, Satterley, who was an ardent Episcopalian, sold 50.39 acres to the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America at less than one-third of its assessed value. The sale included the main house, six additional residences, and the lake. Two months later, ill and despondent over the death of his wife, Herbert Satterley committed suicide. The church gave 8.15 acres to the Greenwich Land Trust, subdivided 17 acres for building lots, and in 1983 sold the great house in 25 acres. The orchards became a private residence once more. Now, there's more to the story that I'd like to share with you. It's not in the book, but as it turns out, um, I found the article uh, about that wedding that was uh, held at uh, the Orchards in 1911. It was published in the Greenwich News on December 1st of that year, and if you don't mind, I'd like to share it with you. Wed at the Orchards, the headline reads, Roundhill Resident Takes Boston Girl for Bride. One of the prettiest fall weddings to take place in Greenwich was that which occurred at the Orchards, the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Tyler Longstreet Redfield at Round Hill on Saturday, November 25th at 1 p.m. when Mr. Redfield's brother, Judd Hamilton Redfield, and Miss Emily Louise Lockwood were united by marriage by Reverend M. George Thompson. One hundred guests came from New York in a private car shortly after 12 o'clock and returned at 4 o'clock. The ceremony took place in the music room where the decorations were palms and pink and white chrysanthemums, furnished by Macmillan the florist. From amidst the palms, Delmonico's orchestra discoursed wedding music while the wedding march was played on the pipe organ by Professor W. H. Price of the Aeolian Company, of New York. The bride, who is the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. George Walker Lockwood of Boston, was given away by her father. She was attended by Miss Ethel Howard of Buffalo as maid, in honor, maid of honor, while the groom's best man was Edgar C. Ackerman of London and New York. The ushers were W.J. Parslow of New York, Andre Pearson of Greenwich, Albert Lockwood, the bride's brother, and John A. Haskell of Boston. The bride was beautifully attired in a white satin gown trimmed with duchess and rose point lace, and her bridal veil was one which had been handed down from her great-grandmother, Susan Adams of Boston, in 1804. 
It was a beautiful piece of old lace that was greatly admired. The bride's bouquet was of pink roses. Her only jeweled ornament was a diamond circular pendant, the gift of the groom. The maid of honor was attired in pink satin with chiffon overdress, trimmed with silver fringe, and her bouquet was lilies of the valley and orchids. Following the ceremony, the guests partook of a wedding breakfast served by Delmonico's of New York. Mr. and Mrs. Redfield departed later in the day for Pinehurst, North Carolina, where the groom's brother, Tyler Redfield, has a winter estate, Boxcourt, and where they will spend their honeymoon, the place having been specially prepared especially for their occupancy. They are expected to return to Greenwich about the middle of December. The bride is a lineal descendant of John Quincy Adams. She has lived most of her life in Boston, her education being completed in the Miss Finch School in New York City. She is a member of the Greenwich Country Club and the only scratch player at golf at that club. Well, how about that? Well, my friends, let me tell you something. The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library System. You can do that by going online to GreenwichHistory.org. Now, if you would like to acquire a copy uh, of your own, I would suggest that you please visit the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store at GreenwichHistory.org. If you have any questions, you can always call the museum store at 203-869-6899, or if you wish, you could also contact your favorite book vendor. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good, located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church. Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org.
Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twuckman at the Greenwich Historical Society on October 19th, 2022, and it would be closing on January 22nd, 2023. My friends, this long-awaited exhibition of artworks by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twuckman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, presents a new view into the artist's life and home in Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899. The exhibition, curated by art historian and Twachman scholar Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., features artworks on loan from museum and private collections across the country, offering a unique glimpse into the artworks Twachman made, which depict his Greenwich home and his distinctive environs and the way the artist shaped the land to meet his artistic needs. Afternoon in the Reading Room, Twachman, in his own words, will be held on Sunday, January 8th, 2023, from 2 until 4 p.m. Join Greenwich Historical Society Archives and curatorial staff for an afternoon in the Library and Archives Reading Room, delving deeper into the words and life of painter John Henry Twachman and exploring his ties to the Holly family in Coscob. My friends, to learn more about life and art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, a writer, a gifted storyteller, and his remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. He used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale when writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff through his column, The Judge's Corner. Now, years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's published columns, organizing them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 vintage newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. Now, my friends, on today's show, I'm going to share with you column number 147. It's dated November 3rd, 1932. Its title, When Gamecocks Were Raised in Greenwich, Horse Racing, Another Sport Once Much Enjoyed Here, Marine Sports, A Favorite with Others. And Judge Hubbard's comments goes as follows. The particular description of Armory Hall in this column last week was probably more in detail than was necessary as applied to the courtroom of a justice of the peace. But, as was intimated, there was a reason for such minute description, for the room was at times used for other purposes than those set forth. While the people of Greenwich have always been known as sober and industrious in the conduct of their agricultural pursuits, from early days there has been an element that could not be classed with the best people. In the early town histories, there are accounts of complaints against these who did not live a strictly exemplary life. There was a sporting inclination and the use of intoxicating liquor, which probably were the basis of such complaint. In later years, even after the termination of the Civil War, this sporting event existed and was especially manifested in the fighting of Gamecocks. The town had the reputation in sporting circles of raising the most powerful and spirited Gamecocks on the market. The breeders of such birds, quote-unquote as they were called, lived on a winding and scantily populated road on the west side of the town. 
while the location was somewhat remote from the village, its proximity to Portchester afforded an excellent outlet into New York State for the sale of the famous fighters. The sport was never subject to much publicity, and had a general knowledge of it gone abroad, it would have been exceedingly unpopular. The sporting event was very limited in numbers, and it was the purpose of those within the circle to limit its attendance. Had admission to the fight been a source of revenue, it might have been different, and would certainly have attracted public notice. But the purpose of such occasions was only to afford a subject for betting on results. In a remote location to which we have referred, a good business was done not only in the sale of young birds, but also in the sale of eggs. Those who handled the business were very secretive, and unless one were well known, it was very difficult to get even a look at the flock. Someone had leaked when a reporter from the New York Sun wrote a column on the subject, and after that no one, whether well-known or not, could find an entrance to the pens without a ticket signed by one of one who issued them from the room, so fully described in our last article. And it was in this room, after the midnight hour, that some of the most spirited and perhaps brutal fights took place and considerable money changed hands in the result. This will account for the opaque green shades. Such occasions sometimes caused bad feelings, especially if one was a poor loser. On one occasion, false spurs had been put on a young bird with the result that he was an unexpected winner. These spurs were so adroitly secured and of the natural color that it was several days before those who had lost realized how it had happened. After that, much precaution was taken. The birds were carefully examined and accurately weighed before being placed in the ring. Horse racing came into vogue in the early days and was quite an innocent pastime. Most of the farmer boys owned their own cults. They were trained and raised by boys sometimes under 16 years of age. Stretching north for a half a mile along North Street from Electric Hill was a strip of road called in those days the North Street Trotting Course. It was before the days of macadam surface. The, the ground was just sandy enough to afford a firm grip by the feet of the colts. Here were many races before the Civil War, the entries being limited to untried colts of less than two years of age. The course was only a timed course, as the road was too narrow to admit of passing. But timekeepers at each end with stopwatches determined the winner. Entries for Saturday afternoon races were made for local horses as well as those from nearby towns in Westchester County. The old-time farmers used to brag that their boys never made a bet on results, and that was probably the fact. With the boys, it was simply a matter of pride to own the fastest cult. There is no record in existence of the time made in those contests. It was long before Maud S. made a mile in 2 minutes and 18 seconds. And it was. it is not likely that less than a minute was made by a cult over the half-mile course. Following the Civil War, there was considerable racing on the post road from the Lennox House to the top of Putnam Hill. On this stretch of road was wide, en was wide enough 
to admit the passing in speed was determined not by the time, but by getting there first. Such racing was only a winter sport and could be relied upon every year, as good sleighing lasted for six to eight or eight weeks after Thanksgiving. In those days, many good horses were owned in Greenwich and Portchester. Such reliable dealers as Lyman L. Ferris, Dan Ryan, or Henry Johnson sold sound stock and were always on their guard against the tricks of other dealers. A frequent remark in public places in those days was that the afternoon race was likely to be well attended, which meant that the street on both sides would be lined with local and non-resident observers who loved good horses and rejoiced in their achievements. The Field Point trotting course came years later. It followed the death of Oliver Mead in 1887, and it was pending a determination of title by the Supreme Court of Errors. A cousin of the deceased, Oliver D. Mead, was in possession and later was declared by the court to be the absolute owner. But during this period of uncertainty, no conveyance of land was made, and Mr. Mead permitted the use of a portion of it for a trotting course. It is probable that a regular organization was formed, officered by those who laid out and constructed the half-mile course around the most sightly inland part of what is now owned by various purchasers. Sheds were built for the horses that entered the races from many miles around. Among those who owned such horses were Judge R.J. Walsh, H. Frank June, and Dan Ryan of King Street. A race day brought many observers who enjoyed these occasions where no bookmakers invaded the circle. During an earlier period, William Rockefeller, for his private use, had built a half-mile course on Lake Avenue on land still owned by the family. He had a trainer for his cult and, at that time, one of the fastest pole teams in the world, Independence and Cleoria, were driven by him. But sports were not limited to the land. Marine sports have always been popular and indulged in by those who rejoiced in sailing yachts and were disposed to sneer at steamers and powerboats, which now figure so generally in our harbor. Boss Tweed had his first steam yacht, but he and his associates also owned many sail vessels. At the same time, such beautiful schooners such as the Fleur de Lis and the Skylark with the Endymion, later made a, a choice addition to the picturesque harbor. And there were fishermen who went out just for the fun of it, and the Merritts, John and his brother, who went to replenish the stock in the icebox of the, the little market on Greenwich Avenue. They were great fishermen. They seemed to have the luck that no one else could claim. Others were Joe Jeffers, John W. Gillespie and Henry M. Fitzgerald, who fished from the same boat while Joseph M. Merritt preferred to be alone and out of the excitement, as he expressed it. After the warm summer days, when the sun began to set farther north, this same bunch, with perhaps a Brinkerhoff in Merritt's boat, could make their way with the ebb tide to those deep water fishing grounds outside Captain's Island where the weak fish and the sea bass would constitute an all-night catch. Other sporty fishermen have now taken their place. The tackle is the finest that Abercrombie and Fitch can produce. We hear of silver reels flashing in the setting sun, 
leather jackets in case they're sturdy figures. Beyond the great island, near that immense boulder where once the Indians sat, it grows cold after the sun goes down. But unlike those of the tropics, the twilight makes no sudden dip into the night. It lingers as the clouds under the reflection of the departed sun change their golden colors to ribbons of blue. The lighthouse gives forth its blazing signal, and yet the darkness hesitates. The great white liners to Boston show their bow and masthead lights about the red and green of their running lights. The old rumble of paddle wheels is no more. The modern twin screws drive the ship at 23 knots, and deep silence follows. Then comes the cry of the night. Birds and the smash of the liners wash against the great boulder. The fishermen may cast their lines, but if there are no bites, at least there is the satisfaction of being isolated for the night, and on the tranquil waters of the sound, and beneath the starlit canopy of the heavens. Signed, Frederick A. Hubbard. Now, Frank Nicholson said this of Judge Hubbard. One feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man, traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, an oracle, a profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, and even a militant protester, and a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history. Well, my friends, I have good news for you. Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. It's available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. To learn more, visit GreenwichLibrary.org. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, my friends, Rick Hansen, local history librarian at the Greenwich Library, has announced the Heritage with Hoopla 5 part series. Why not start the new year by delving into your genealogy and family history? Join us as attendees wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the great courses series. The series is free to the public. No registration is required. Seating is limited to 18 and seating is made on a first come first served basis. The first workshop Ancestors in Ship Passenger Lists is Wednesday, January 4th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Learn how to make sense of passenger arrival records, the single most precious document for reconstructing your ancestors' voyage to North America. Using several key guideposts and sources, including colonial land records and immigrant directories, you can uncover facts about arrivals from colonial days through the 1950s. The second workshop, Ancestors in Naturalization Records, will be held 
held on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Did your immigrant ancestors become U.S. citizens? Did they procrastinate or not naturalize at all? Dr. Collada reveals how naturalization records can answer these and other biographical questions. You'll focus on adapting your research to three major naturalization periods prior to 1790, 1790 to 1906, and 1906 to today. The next workshop, the Genealogical Proof Standard, will be held on Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Strengthen your skills as a family history detective in this in-depth look at the Genealogical Proof Standard, the five-step process that certified genealogists use for proving ancestral identities, relationships, life events, and other biographical details. Then wrap up the lecture with a fascinating look at the nature of evidence. The next workshop is Ancestors in the County Courthouse that will be held on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Discover how to work your way through the courthouse records of the county where your ancestors resided. Using the two most common types of courts, circuit and chancery, you'll examine how to read courthouse materials, including probate packets, vital records, tax rolls, and even colonial era records such as indentures and apprenticeships. And the final workshop will be held on February 1st, 2023, and that one is Ancestors and State Records. Now again, that will be on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Good genealogists always take advantage of local sources outside the courthouse as well, including state archives, which hold records that resulted in the administration of state laws. Here, you'll learn how to tap into the information found in original sources, such as census and military records, and derivative sources, including maps and newspapers. As with all workshops, please arrive early as the program will start right on time. Each week, attendees will watch a 30-minute genealogy video in Hoopla, followed by a discussion and practice of the techniques learned. Participants and attendees are asked, please, to bring your Greenwich Library card and PIN to access Hoopla. Program Contact, uh, contact is Carla Sherman at 203-625-6560 or Rick Hansen at 203-622-7948. Again, this is the Heritage with Hoopla series at the Greenwich Library. Attendees will wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the Great Source series. This is free and open to the public. There is no res- registration required. You are encouraged to come to all of the of the workshops. And again, uh, it is always first come, first served. Engaging Ideas with historian Dr. Ashley Farmer is an online event at the Greenwich Library open to the public on Wednesday, January 11, 2023, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Farmer discusses her research of black women's intellectual history, including research strategies and primary source databases. Greenwich Library subscribes to ProQuest's historical black newspaper collection, offering essential primary source content and editorial perspective 
perspectives of the most distinguished African-American newspapers in the United States. Dr. Ashley D. Farmer is a historian of black women's history, intellectual history, and radical politics. She is currently an associate professor in the departments of history and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, is the first comprehensive study of black women's intellectual production and activism in the black power era. She is also the co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition, an anthology that examines central themes within the black intellectual tradition. Her next book, Queen Mother Audley Moore, Mother of Black Nationalism, which is forthcoming from the University of North Carolina Press, will be the first biography of one of the most influential yet understudied activists and thinkers of the 20th century. Farmer earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Spelman College, a Master of Arts in History, and a PhD in African American Studies from Harvard University. Dr. Farmer lives in Austin, Texas. The event URL will be sent via registration email. There are 39 slots available. Now, for more information, my friends, please visit GreenwichLibrary.org. The program contact is Rick Hansen. He is the local uh, Greenwich, uh, Greenwich Library local history historian, uh, or librarian, rather, sorry. <laughs> and um, his contact uh, phone number is 203-622-7948. You can also reach him by email at r. Hansen, that's R-H-A-N-S-E-N, at GreenwichLibrary.org. Well, I thought that I would share this with you. It comes from the January 1st, 1880 edition of the Greenwich Observer. Um, that was the earliest known newspaper that was published in Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, the title of this, The Old and New Year, is from that edition. And it goes as follows. Today the world begins another year of existence, and as it enters it brings with it the renewal of the resolutions so thoughtlessly broken during the receding year. Resolutions to do good first to yourself and then to your neighbor afterward. With the dead twelve months just gone, many of us bury a term of gladness intermingled with woe. Some have buried a harvest of joyousness they had never expect to reap again. Others have bid adieu to wretchedness they hope to experience no more. And many, so many, have laid in the grave those who, have, who had seemed nearest and dearest to them. Time has grouped them all into one lot, and together with the year gone but yesterday, has laid them quietly away all in the great tomb, the sepulchre of the past. What changes a year has wrought? How many souls have been ushered into time, and how many into eternity? How many good and useful lives have passed from one world to the other, great lives that were prolonged as much as possible, for the good they might do below, revived even at the close, but for a moment only, like the last dying ember fanned by the breeze into momentary brightness, to be the next minute extinguished entirely. But yet, though the passing away of the past leaves with us the melancholy of sad remembrance, the heart and the mind must be lightened of their burden by the anticipation 
with which the future never fails to be fraught. In a governmental view, the entree of the newborn year is especially important, for it ushers in a new era, as it were, of political struggling and victory. During the present year, the greatest election with which the American population is entrusted takes place, the choosing of a presiding officer over the whole United States. In a social view, New Year's Day is indeed a pleasant time for those with whom the world has dealt kindly. Light, warmth, laughter, pleasant companions of old-time wine and wassail are with them at the feast. For these, this day is a pleasant one, not easily or willingly forgotten. They watch for it all the year round, and when it comes... They give it a good grip of old acquaintance' sake. And if the season be so acceptable as to be watched for all the year through, why should we not keep up its best source of enjoyment as an abiding influence? But while we mold this metal of joy in our happy village of Greenwich, we must remember that there is a reverse to it, which we can see by looking at its other side. To many, in cities more particularly than in Greenwich and her neighboring towns, the joys of the season are but an intensification of misery. Even within the sounds of merriment and music are the appealing cries of misery heard. And along the streets amid the throngs of fashion and folly, we see the outstretched hand of weak womanhood begging for a simple means of getting a morsel of bread or a spark of fire for a little one's suffering at home. The cries of hunger mingle this day with the sounds of mirth. The poor we have always with us, and we should keep our religious teachings, symbolized in holiday charities, always with us too. The means and opportunities are manifest and manifold. It will indeed require but a small offering from each of us to keep New Year holiday feelings and charities alive all the year round. Winter is here, to say the least. As some of you know, we had our recent first snow that came here to Greenwich, Connecticut, and um, I found this in the January 1st, 1880 edition of the Greenwich Observer. It was the first newspaper that was published um, in the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, at least that we know of, and its title is Winter. I don't know who wrote it. The uh, editor of the Greenwich Observer is William M. Keeler. That would be William Mead Keeler. I know that Mead name keeps popping up. What can I say? <laughs> anyway, oh well. Anyway, this is uh, what um, the Greenwich Observer had to say about the season of winter. And it goes as follows. The season of balls, parties, skating, slaying, blue lips, frozen noses and toeses has been ushered in upon us all. We have had several tastes of young winter before, but now the quote-unquote cold snap may be considered legitimate. We have no reasonable right to look back for clemency now from either old Boreas nor Jack Frost nor the fleecy gods that shower their flakes upon the just and the unjust. To the rich man, there is no more glorious season than a quote-unquote swinging cold winter. He may have difficulty in keeping cool during the summer, for art has not yet perfected a thorough modifier of heat, which is no respecter of persons, but with rubbers, snowshoes, silken woolen undergarments, furs, buffalo robes, mittens, thick 
cloth gloves, stoves, steam pipes, etc., he may laugh at the inclemency of winter. Even Yet even the rich man must have some active exercises during these three months, or when the opening of spring arises, and he will find himself seriously troubled by dyspepsia. To the poor man, active exercise is a necessity. He must either jump around in a lively manner or freeze to death. For him, it is a season of prudence and industry. Foresight, economy, and constant employment are the essentials, most entitled to his consideration. For the rich and poor, there is no better exercise than sawing wood. It is a thousand times superior to all the gymnasiums in the world. It is what gives a poor man ruddy cheeks and Arabus constitution. It is what would soon convince many a rich man that his saddle horse was a superfluity. I don't know why that's there. And his walking shoes of no value. The best physiologists have decided this point over and over again, but the exercise is not yet become fashionable. Would that would that it had let some independent man break the way this winter for further generations. This is the only suitable person for the pastime, and if it was put in operation now by influential persons, the day would not be far distant when we would have sawing machines instead of walking matches, and the world would be much improved by the change. Try it, gentlemen. Commence by sawing a load of wood for some poor widow. This is winter indeed for her. Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated and revised edition of another Greenwich history book, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Going through 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society. It was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is another descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and his numerous philanthropic bequests over the years have advanced the preservation of the town's history, for which we are grateful. On today's show, we're going to gaze back in time to the year 1942. On January 2nd, Greenwich police guard the railroad station as the train carrying Winston Churchill passes through at 4.18 a.m. On January 5th, aliens in Greenwich must turn in their shortwave radios, firearms, and cameras to the police according to government regulations. On January 6th, an emergency program involving over 100 doctors, nurses, and Red Cross workers is set up to provide medical treatment in a disaster. On January 24, 1942, the high school is evacuated in three minutes in the first air raid practice. All students go to nearby homes in groups of 10. January 28th. Greenwich Hospital postpones its new building after failing to receive priority rating from Washington. February 9th, 1942, Greenwich and the nation go on quote-unquote wartime, turning clocks one hour ahead. On the same day, the Red Cross Canteen opens on Art Street in the Junior League headquarters. On February 12th, 
the first Negro Music Festival in Greenwich with a 150-voice choir is held in the high school auditorium. February 13th, the next day, the Greenwich Sugar Ration Board is appointed, and on the 16th of February, the Round Hill Bus Service is the first of several to be formed during the war to save gasoline. On that same day, at the Masonic Temple headquarters, 250 volunteers registered 2,448 men in the 20 to 44 age bracket for the draft. On February 17th, Greenwich quote-unquote blacks out in the first major Eastern Shore air raid precaution drill about 9 in the evening. February 22nd, the American Legion opens its new home in the old Emmer Jerome Firehouse. March 2nd, 1942, tides eight feet above normal flood the shore areas and isolate homes. On March 28th, new sirens are installed in the backcountry after regional church bells used in blackout warnings prove inaudible for any distance. On April 7th, 1942, the FBI, aided by Greenwich police, raid more than 50 homes of enemy aliens to seize contraband. On April 11th, provisions are made for the voluntary registration of Greenwich women for employment in war industries. On May 3rd, a deputy housing administrator is named to control rent ceilings. And on May 7th, 1942, about 31,500 persons registered to obtain food ration books. On, in the month of May, the National Audubon Society's Center on Riversville Road opens on a 281-acre gift from Eleanor and H. Hall Clovis. In 1945, the adjacent wildflower garden of 127 acres is a gift of Benjamin T. Fairchild. May 12, 1942, gas ration cards are given to 11,400 registrants. On May 18th, Greenwich and the nation are subjected to price ceilings on rents, clothing, and household goods. On May 28th, the RTM, that would be the representative town meeting, approves leasing Todd's Point from the Presbyterian Hospital for $30,000 for one year to cover rental, back taxes, and some improvements. In June 1942, Greenwich Country Day School merges with Rosemary Junior School to become a co-educational school on the Country Day campus. June 6, 1942, 60 acres of Todd's Point opens to the Greenwich public for the season. In the month of September 1942, the fire prevention ordinance is tabled for the third time by the representative town meeting. On October 16th, the Connecticut governor comes to Greenwich to boost the scrap metal drive. And on October 27th, that would be 1942, the first incident officer's school in Connecticut to train wardens in war gas detection and bomb protection opens at the high school. On November 18th, the draft age is lowered and all 18-year-olds must register. On November 22nd, all car owners must register their tires and sell any in excess of five for each car. On November 29th, the Crispus Attucks Community Center serving the needs of African Americans living in Greenwich opens in a building on Railroad Avenue, formerly occupied by the Boys Club. 
On December 9th, oil burners in all town buildings are converted to coal to save oil. And on December 18th, the United States government stops all gasoline sales for 60 hours in the Atlantic seaboard states because of the tremendous military needs. And finally, last but not least, there are 19 factories in Greenwich employing 4,200 people, and that concludes 1942. Greenwich Before 2000 is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. You can find that by going online to GreenwichLibrary.org. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Erwin Edwards and later his brother L.B. Edwards were columnists in the early 20th century whose articles about Greenwich, Connecticut's history were published under the headline, Greenwich Life as it is and was. Today's excursion into history is going to revolve around the beginnings of the railroads uh, here in uh, Greenwich. The headline of this story is When the Railroad Was New, and it was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on December 8th, 1922, just a little over 100 years ago. There were men living in Greenwich a few years ago, and there probably, or possibly, may be some now who, as boys or young men, went to New York on the first train over the New York and New Haven Railroad. That was in 1848, and they told interesting stories of how almost the whole townspeople were at the railroad station to see the train pull out. It was a great day in Greenwich. The stagecoach was eliminated, and passenger traffic by steamboat was about over, except in the summertime, when there was some steamboat travel by those who enjoyed the water trip to New York. The construction of the railroad was looked upon with misgivings by not a few men of affairs as to its success. The survey could have taken a much shorter and more direct route further inland, but the tracks were laid in almost all the towns as near the water as possible. The reason for this was because of the steamboat competition. Most of the stock was taken by farmers and others living in the towns through which the line passed in small blocks. It did not pay dividends at first, and in the early history there were some stock frauds practiced that, <laughs> that the courts compelled the company to make good that was of severe financial injury. Though the railroad was so near the water, the company secured but little freight business in its early history. But the passenger business increased rapidly, and it was not long before the stock was paying good dividends. 
The charter of the company provided that all income over expenses and in excess of 10% profit must be returned to the state. For many years, the stock paid the 10% dividends and its market value was $300 a share. Except for a few shares now and then, none could be bought, the investment being considered gilt edge, quote-unquote, and if not the last, one of the best securities in the country. The Greenwich owners of the stock, of which there were quite uh, quite many, were naturally pleased at the way their investment turned out and held the stock as their prized financial possession. All over the 10% earned was paid in a repair fund, as it was called, and then Charles P. Clark became president. The fund amounted to a large number. President Clark was perhaps the most capable chief official of the New York and New Haven Railroad Company ever had. His brother, the Reverend Mr. Clark, then pastor of the North Greenwich Church in New Haven, stated in a sermon that the territory between New York and New Haven at some point, not in the far future, would be considerably built up with thriving cities and towns. President Clark realized how they were growing and the possibilities of greater business with increased facilities and began the four-tracking operation. It was a big uh, undertaking and the cost and cost a lot of money, but the successful results showed the wisdom of his judgment as the freight business became as important as the passenger traffic. Through Greenwich, there was some heavy work because of the difficult cuts through rock and the taking out of of spaces to shorten the distance. What was then known as the Mansion House property was purchased, the hotel altered into the present freight depot, and the ground used for the freight there, thereby removing one of the biggest curves on the line. In other towns, changes were made and made the distance between the cities considerably less, so that better time was made. This improvement was a benefit to Greenwich because decreased time between Greenwich and New York was as important a factor in inducing wealthy New York businessmen looking about for suburban homes to locate here. The next important improvement was in President Mellon's time, when the electrification of the line between Stamford and New York was accomplished, thus doing away with the disagreeable trip through the tunnel encased by smoke and providing several other advantages greatly appreciated by the traveling public. When the four tracking were finished, handsome brick stations were built in all the towns except Greenwich to replace the wooden depots that had been in use ever since the railroad had been built. Here the little wooden building was enlarged and painted to make it more a modern appearance and provide more room for increased passenger traffic. Comment was made at the time that Greenwich, with its class of patronage, should have a railroad station in keeping with the high character and volume of business given the company from the town. All kinds of reasons were stated by railroad officials when asked why Greenwich should not receive as favorable station privileges as other towns, and it was given out that the town at no distant day would have a commodious brick structure on the site of the old mansion house. 
It is still using the old station, however, with apparently no prospect of a new depot for a long time to come. Under President Elliott's management, improvements were made, but of course not to the extent they were under the management of the other two presidents. From time to time, for a number of years, efforts were put forth to build a parallel line. Frequent attempts were made to secure charter through the legislature, but they were always defeated by reason. It is said of a powerful lobby, the New York and New Haven Railroad Company kept in Hartford, when the legislature was in session. To overcome this obstacle, the promoters of the parallel schemes secured the passage of a general railroad law that permitted the building of railroads in the state under certain conditions. After that law was passed for a number of years, not one went by without a quote-unquote gang of surveyors appearing in Greenwich to lay out the parallel railroad line. The last party of surveyors to come here was for what was called the Olmstead Parallel Railroad Company, and down at Chickahominy is an embankment that was constructed for this company. That petered out, and it was said the company had been bought off, a statement that had been made by some of the other companies that had apparently started in good faith, and nothing more has been heard about the parallel railroads in Greenwich for years. Nearly, if not quite half a century ago, the New York and New Haven Company and the New Haven, Hartford, and Springfield Railroad Company, a prosperous line, were consolidated and the names changed to the Consolidated Railroad Company. That name never was popular, and subsequently the name New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad Company was adopted. Although still known legally under that t title, it generally is called the New Haven Railroad Company. A few years later, the Shoreline Railroad, running between New Haven and New London, came under the management of the New York New Haven Railroad Company, and the other leases and purchases of lines is of too recent date to be mentioned. But by acquiring the trolley lines, the New York and Stamford trolley was made an exceptionally fine line, thus giving Greenwich a splendid trolley service it would not otherwise have had. Well, my friends, the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, January 5th, 1923, published a letter to the editor of the kind that I have never seen before. And I wanted to share this with you um, because it is a very important part of our, um, our history. And um, those of you who are of Italian descent uh, here in Greenwich and beyond, I think this will certainly resonate with you. By the way, I am part Italian as part of my um, ancestry, one quarter Italian. So <laughs> this certainly caught my attention and I hope that it does with you as well. Again, this was printed in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, January 5th, 1923. So um, it, uh, the headline says, protests, quote unquote, Italian. Have I got your attention yet? All right. Well, here we go. To the editor, News and Graphic. Society Sons of Italy, of Greenwich, of which I am a member, has taken exception to the word you frequently use, namely, quote, an Italian, unquote, in your news column, particularly the one printed on the first column of the News and Graphic of December 22nd, entitled, quote, Cascob Stirred Up, unquote, 
The writer, therefore, has been authorized to write the following and trust that you will find little space in your paper. It does not seem fair to the Italian population of Greenwich that whenever a person of Italian extraction is mentioned in your paper that the words, quote, an Italian, unquote, should be printed immediately after the name. To my mind, it suggests prejudice. If, however, it is necessary to make known the nationality, there should not be any partiality. We Italians in America are among the very best of the immigration, but, unfortunately, we receive more censure for the misdeeds of the few than praise for the excellence of the many. We make good, loyal citizens and are not slow to take out citizenship papers. We have done more than our share in providing the labor so necessary to the development of American industry. We deposit our savings in the banks which have furnished capital for American industry. We contribute gladly to every artistic endeavor, and when the occasion arises, we fight for America as hard as anybody. In spite of all this, we get very little real appreciation, and nowhere do we get less than in Greenwich. In view of the above, and in behalf of the Italian population of our town, please refrain, if possible, from printing the word, quote, an Italian, unquote, immediately following a person's name. Yours for a square deal, Charles W. Carvet or Carvetta, Mianus, January 4th. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we <laughs> talk about crime, crime and misdemeanors um, in Greenwich history. And um, unfortunately, we do live in a rather imperfect world and uh, there has always been something of a criminal element in town. What can I say? It's an imperfect world, as I'm prone to asserting. But first, before I... Uh, elaborate on some crimes that were committed in um, Greenwich's history. I have a poem dedicated to the Greenwich Police Department that I would like to read. I did not write this poem. The poem actually appears in the Friday, January 1st, 1926 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. Um, it was written by a resident. Uh, I assume she's a resident. Her name is Edith C. Gargiulo, and uh, the poem is as follows. The headline is, The Greenwich Police. Why must they stand upon the street, exposed to snow, rain, ice, and sleet, a prey to pleurisy and gripe, from howling winds that sting and nip? They guide the children to and fro, and women drivers, too I know, trust to their courtesy and care to help them in the traffic snare. I hope the town agrees with me. On busy corners there should be a hated sentry box where they can safely guard us on our way. An oil stove, a semaphore, would do away forevermore with hardships which they bear meanwhile, unflinching and bravely smile. So, city fathers, please give heed to this, unto this their pressing need, and let this great injustice cease to our brave uniformed police. 
And again, that was written and uh, and it was published in the January 1st, 1926 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. And the author of that poem is Edith C. Gargiulo. The Greenwich News and Graphic reported on an arrest of uh, a, a gentleman, a young man, age 22. And um, this was in the Friday, January 5th, 1923 edition. The headline reads, Shulman arrested, swindler of local coal company nabbed in California. Remember, this is back in 1923, about a century ago. Well, and it goes as follows. William Shulman, age 22, for whom a warrant was sworn out here by Assistant Prosecuting Attorney Henry B. White some three weeks ago, charging him with obtaining money under false pretenses by raising a $15 check to $15,000, was arrested in San Diego, California, last Thursday night. A telegram received here by the Cascab Coal Company from the proprietor of the Del Coronado Hotel in that city last Friday morning stated that Shulman had been taken into custody there after he had attempted to pass a check for $100, signing his name as president of the Cascab Coal Company. He probably will be brought to New York to stand trial and later may be arraigned in the Greenwich Borough Court. As announced in last week's issue of the News and Graphics, Shulman has a long prison record and several aliases. An investigation is being made of his place of business in New York, and he has been summoned to appear before the fuel administrator just before he pulled off the slick deal in Greenwich. Well, as always, I want to thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the 27th of December, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This is the final show of the year 2022. And boy, what a year it's been. This weekly podcast is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Again, known as, uh, for a long time as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. Now, since those early beginnings, this town, Greenwich, Connecticut, has grown to become in the 21st century one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home, and I hope that you do too. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast was made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of the Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. I invite you to contact me anytime by email by going to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday. That would be the 3rd of January, 2023. My friends, I want to say to you in the meantime that I am very grateful to all of you for the interest and enthusiasm that you have shown for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. As we start to usher in a new year, I wish you all a very happy and a very safe new year. I will see you next week, literally in the new year, January 3rd, 2023. I look forward to it. I think it's going to be an interesting year ahead, as it always is. <laughs> anyway, that's all I have to say. Take good care, 
and be safe and be well. All right, bye-bye now. 